your top five NFT collection that you own or are excited about? Obviously, Bored Apes is one that I'm a big fan of. I mean, I can't obviously not include Mochaverse. Mochaverse is just um, the most recent mint. We're super excited about that. Um, you know, I, I don't know what they're going to look like. You know, the reveal will happen soon. Uh, you know, big fans of Cool Cats as well. I think there's some fascinating things. Sandbox, I mean, these are, you know, it's very near and dear, shall we say, to sort of, I guess, our personal sort of hard as any local brands. Uh, and then finally, you know, uh, is TalkSpot. TalkSpot is doing a lot of things. Most people don't realize that the Rev ecosystem actually has over 200 people working on some cool stuff there. I'm your host, Mehdi Farooq, Senior Tokenomics Analyst at Endemoka Brands. Alongside with me, I have my co-host, Mo, who is the Head of Tokenomics at Endemoka Brands. Uh, today with us, we have a very special guest, Crypto OG, Yatsu, Chairman and Founder of Endemoka Brands. Yat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Although I wouldn't call myself really a Crypto OG. I think maybe NFT OG is a little bit more appropriate since... I haven't really been, you know, in, in crypto since its birth years, shall we say. Uh, but either way, thank you very much for the warm introduction. Excellent. Uh, since we have a lot to uncover yet, so I'll just jump right into it. Uh, in your talks and in your presentation, you emphasize a lot on uh, positive and strong correlation between digital property rights, culture, and GDP per capita. Hmm. So how does that translate to your vision for Web3 crypto and Animoka Brands vision. So generally speaking, uh, you know, as we may have shared earlier, we view the metaverse and the whole sort of blockchain layer one, layer twos, and, and uh, entire Web three space like the construction of new economies and like countries. And so, one of the things that we identify so strongly about this concept of tokenization is the ability to combine these various cultures into tangible economic units. So when you think about the birth of the internet, what it really did was it created a way for us to come together from all over the world and create new identities independent of our national ones. So, you know, when you are sort of in a country, you really have multiple identities anyway. But in some ways, what happens is, is that you're generally bound together in a national sense. Right. You know, and I grew up in Austria, so, you know, am I Austrian or you know, I'm ethically Chinese. Does that make me Chinese, for instance, right? Or if you are like many people who immigrated to America, you know, in, in the last hundreds of years, even though they're so from all these different countries, they are American, right? Or maybe they have other identities as well, because you have Irish American, you have Chinese American, and you have whatever, right? So these are all these micro identities. And what we've seen with the internet is that these micro identities actually mushroomed even further. You know, when you think of what's going on in sort of forums, like in Reddit or something, actually, or, or in gaming culture, especially, you'll notice that there's different tribes that are being formed within those communities themselves. And what you're seeing formed there isn't just a case of, I enjoy the service and let's get together. Um, it's actually another kind of identity. Uh, so I, we're experiencing basically sort of digital nation nationalism and digital sort of, you know, basically um, 
patriotism almost, you could say. You can, you can experience this actually also in areas like sports. Yes, you know, we may live in a different country, but I can be a fan of, you know, Manchester United, no matter where I am. And somehow I'm connected to that person. You know, and we see this with NFL and NBA and, you know, just everything in the world, right? And that used to be very locked in a national sense before. Like with the Olympics, you would cheer for your country. But now, you know, maybe it's not so clear anymore who you're cheering for because maybe your favorite player is actually not from your country, for instance, in the traditional sense. And so that's kind of uh, how we how we view the entire sort of uh, potential in the space from the from that um, eco economic construction. And so, what is it that binds this? It's not you know, uh, it's not it's not money. I mean, money is maybe the engine that helps sort of make trade and transactions happen. But what binds it is culture. Uh, you know, our, our 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 love for sport, our love for music, our love for movies that we share across the world, in which we create tribes around it, does not come from you know, the pure financial aspect. In fact, that's a, that's really the least important part of it. What's important is culture. In the same way that when we think about the love of our country or the love of our family, again, it's not bound by money. There's a portion of people in the world where money maybe is more important, but for the majority of us, right? You know, it's, it's this cliche thing, you know, like, you know, you can't buy love. I mean, you know, I would say that's very true for at least most of us. Uh, and, and, and that to me is also why sort of things of culture are so, so important. I think I shared in the talk, um, sort of in NFT Paris not too long ago, how culture and the business of culture was the second largest service, uh, sort of, um, um, so, uh, sort of um, revenue generator for services in the in the U.S. You know, after transport, right? Uh, but you know, the thing is, is that what people sometimes don't think of is because that's people working in the industry, and and that includes people in gaming and in movies and in music, and yeah, that's it's it's big. Um, it was close to uh, $900 billion worth uh, in the U.S. alone just, just last year. But the industries that it spawned as a result that are actually not even directly correlated to this sort of culture revenue is much, much greater. I mean, we wouldn't have HBO, we wouldn't have Disney, we wouldn't have Netflix, we wouldn't have Sony, we wouldn't have Samsung, we wouldn't have, like, just think about everything you do in your life that touches culture. I mean, fashion, clothes, <laughs> just everything, right? Um, so, and, and also, you know, even though sort of, let's call it transport and, and, and tr sort of retail, that's also touching culture. I mean, transport, like cars. Cars, in one hand, is maybe a utility you think of as a purchase. But actually, when you buy a car, you're buying it 90% because of culture. I choose a Tesla because of cultural aspect of, you know, a, a belonging of maybe an ESG movement or green. I choose to buy a Rolls Royce or Ferrari for a very different kind of culture. And, you know, maybe that's one of the cultures that some people are critical of in the crypto industry when you say when Lambo, right? Uh, but, you know, jokes aside, it's still a part of that culture. Like, like so, so, so I would argue even retail and transport and all these underlying infrastructure that we depend on all touches culture, right? If they, and, and so the, the crypto term I sometimes use for some people who are Sort of still skeptical of this and say, look, culture is the deepest TVL in the world, right? It's 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 the it's the one big sink, right? If you uh, because it's the kind of thing where you put money in and it doesn't come out, right? You don't buy your clothes to 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 trade tomorrow, right? And and this was one of the things that we struggled uh, to actually talk a lot about, specifically with the very sort of uh, sort of crypto OG community, some almost five years ago when we were sort of really focusing on NFTs and telling people, look, NFTs are a store of culture. You know, if Bitcoin is a store of value, NFTs are a store of culture, and that's actually going to drive everything. 
they were skeptical and for good reason, because, you know, actually it doesn't trade that well. But the whole point is that culture isn't meant to trade that well. I mean, people don't trade their wedding rings, right? People don't trade their family heirlooms, right? They, they, they form part of their identity. It forms part of who they are. And that's actually why it's so important for every economy. Imagine an economy that has no culture, right? Or very limited culture, or its culture is only around money. That means everything is tradable. It means everything is fungible. It means everything has no sort of long lasting effects beyond its immediate value in which it can be monetized. That sounds like a really horrible place to live, frankly speaking, right? I think very few people, when they think about it logically would go, I wanna live in a place where everything is basically just valued in, in those, frankly, inhuman terms. Uh, and that comes back down to the foundation of all of this, which is, well, why are we doing all this? Well, we're doing all this because it's about bettering the human experience and the human experience without culture is not an experience at all, I would say, right? Uh, so, so that's really why culture is so important and why we emphasize on non-fungible tokens because we engage with culture first and non-fungible tokens uh, represent it as the store of digital culture. So, so, so yeah, as a follow-up uh, question, typically when we talk about network effects, data, marketplaces are the types of network effects that people emphasize on. So <clears throat> would you say culture, belief, tribalism is also a unique form of network effects and it could be one of the network effects to kind of think about in crypto as well as life in general. It is absolutely uh, a network effect, right? And and in fact, I would say, even though you would argue that it's not in the past certainly a measurable network effect, it is perhaps the most powerful of network effects. So take a look at, for instance, the influence that America has in the world. So there's one, of course, you could say, the dollar, obviously, and its military clearly is obviously a very big factor. However, the acceptance of American culture is its soft power is actually the reason that, you know, most people almost acquiesce to this because of the fact that they grew up watching American television. They watch American movies. Basically, the American idea of, you know, capitalism, free market, liberalism, all these type of uh, sort of concepts that are constantly actually being promoted in American literature and media that we consume is actually its biggest soft power and therefore something that we aspire to. And when American influence wants to come in and say something, actually it turns out that maybe a big part of the population is like, yeah, I love that, right? But you know, why actually, if you think about it logically speaking, right? Uh, and that comes from, again, culture and it's a network effect, but it's a very, very invisible network effect. Uh, and I think people have started to sort of notice that obviously, which is why in some countries around the world, you know, they, they you know, um, um, entertainment ended up becoming something that had to go through various ministries of cultures where they basically said, look, you know, uh, we have to censor that because it's not because they're censoring it necessarily because it's damaging in the, in the traditional sense, like, like being pornographic or being aggressive or violent, but because of the fact that they are spreading ideas that create network effects of influence from a different soft power that doesn't agree with the one that they want to put forward. Right? So, so again, it's, it's invisible, you could say, it's not traditionally measured, but it's very, very powerful. When you look at, for instance, what the internet did, what the internet did was it would spread these particular cultural ideas um, where people then connected to it and they became a part of it. When you think of even sort of movements like Arab Spring, for instance, I mean, yes, we can obviously, one from certainly one perspective is you could say, it's positive, it introduced more democratic principles and all that kind of stuff, right? So that's that's certainly one perspective, but where did this idea come from and how did it spread? 
And why, 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 why would someone feel connected to, I guess in this case, on a principle, uh, you know, you know, like thousands of miles away, uh, having never met them, and yet still feel closer to that uh, sort of network than to feel uh, sort of kinship to the network that is right next door to you in which you grew up with, right? So, so that's very, very influential. And when you think of the history of humanity, actually what, um, what sort of creates revolutions and change is ideas, right? Uh, you know, one could argue when you're the person in power, dangerous ideas. And what are dangerous ideas? Dangerous ideas basically spread, again, through a new kind of tribalism, a connection that people have. And then, you know, it just sits there uh, and can't go away because it's how you view the world that would be better. And it's a moment of culture. It's not a moment of money, <laughs> right? Um, and, and, you know, whether it's the sort of, you know, American Civil War, uh, whether it's the French Revolution, you know, like you, you name it, right? Or even, you know, the, the so, you know, in the UK, like, you know, the beginnings of the Magna Carta. I mean, these are, if you think about it, sort of disagreements with the current power structures of an idea that then became basically really, really powerful. And then you have the like sort of slightly more harmless ones, like fashion and culture and, 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 and those type of areas about what you wear and how you identify with all of that. That also is obviously uh, a network effect. And what's so powerful about NFTs and blockchain is that you can now actually enumerate that value in a quasi-mathematical format, which can translate into value, but doesn't have to necessarily, right? We used to do that, uh, and we still do that in the traditional world through brand advertising. If I do brand advertising, I sort of force, uh, uh, brute force, tell the world, this is a great product, you should really love it because this other guy loves it, and this famous person loves it. And somehow through smart marketing, it becomes reality. But fundamentally, why do we prefer to buy, for some people, a Nike shoe versus an Adidas shoe versus an ASIC shoe or a Puma shoe? I mean, none of these shoes make you run faster. They generally have similar levels of comfort. So, and, and I always found it sort of funny um, when, when I talked to you know, some, some, um, some friends about, haven't you noticed that the, there's an inverse uh, sort of uh, correlation between the comfort of a shoe and the price of a shoe? Uh, and it's, 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 it's interesting, right? Up to a point, you know, the shoes that are very expensive are not comfortable at all. Uh, but again, you know, <laughs> you wear them for its sort of invisible networks that it creates. And when it's on chain, you can actually really see, oh yes, he does wear it or she does use it or she has one um, and she sold it for this. And all these things become immediately measurable. And as a result, uh, actually create faster network effects as a result. Um, but again, it's not something that everyone um, wants to trade and sell. You know, in the earliest days of, of the NFT world, it was dominated by traders because actually trading was the predominant function of crypto. And so it was not really a surprise to us that you would have a lot of those type of people come in because they would look to see how to make money from this. But now when you think about the number of NFTs that are generally sold of the collections that people own, it tends to be less than 10%. 3%, 5%, certainly in the minority in terms of its percentage that is traded, which is the beginning to me of the healthy development of most people hold on to their culture and only a few of them want to trade on it. And that's fine. They make the market, they, they give it price discovery. You do need them, but you know, so long that they're not 80% of, uh, of, of what you represent, then I think you're in reasonably good shape. Yeah, this, this is fantastic discussion. Like I'm very fascinated by this now. Oh, um, thank you. So, yeah, so I'm I'm gonna shift gears a bit. So yeah, hypothetically, let's imagine we are in 2030, 
So I want to pick your brain with regards to how do you think crypto will look like? Will majority of the tangible and intangible assets in the world, will it be token, will, will they be tokenized? And will all type of network effects, will it be shared uh, by the end users? So, you know, that's a, it's, it's a big vision. And, you know, one of our visions, uh, one of the big visions is to deliver to digital property rights. And the undertone around that is that we feel that we should all own um, equity in what we build. Right? That to us is fundamental. And, and our perspective, that means, you know, if you think back in the old days, old days, right, this idea of property rights, you know, certainly from sort of Locke's sort of definition of your labor, right? Your labor is your property, so to speak. Uh, there is an element of that, I think, that is very, very true today. Because we think the new labor is data generation. You know, especially today when everyone's talking about AI, you know, actually without the data that we as end users have generated, there would be no chat GPT. If we're not driving Tesla cars, there would be no self-driving Teslas, right? If we're not using Facebook, there would be no Facebook. There would be no sort of, you know, uh, targeted advertising and analysis and all these things. And that's actually because we labored in our own time for this data, except of course we don't own any of that because we sit on the platform who basically takes all of that and says, hey, for your benefit of using it, you should surrender all the derivative effects. And that's because we have a misunderstanding of data for the most part, because we look at our own photos and we say, well, it's not that special. I mean, it's my photos. It means something to me culturally, but actually what these photos can generate actually is very powerful is the derivative effect. And so similarly, if you build on your land or if you build on your work, then we, are, ought, we ought to be sort of paid something for it or own a share in this. And so the longer term picture, you know, whether this is 2030 or 2040, is that the answer towards a lot of these problems we think will be solved with this idea of a kind of universal basic equity, not universal basic income. Universal basic income is a little bit too close to I guess the sort of socialist concept of we should give everyone something. And while we are not in disagreement that we have to make sure that everyone is taken care of, uh, we struggle with the idea that everyone should get the same. Because, you know, uh, I grew up in Austria uh, during the time when it was still sort of between East and West. And for those people who know Vienna, Vienna was right at the border between basically sort of where it happened. And that was also the time when everyone was dramatizing spy novels and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, the, the Cold War. And my mom used to work at the Komische Oper in East, uh, in what was back then the eastern side of Berlin. And so I would visit her as a child. And, you know, obviously I'm not saying that socialism is like that, obviously. Um, um, uh, but but I've, se I've seen the extreme side of what happens when you say everyone ought to be exactly the same and the whole communist experiment which, uh, which, which I would generally say has, has failed. Uh, I think everyone would probably agree, agree with that. Um, so universal basic income is a difficult concept for, 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 for me and I think for most people to, to swallow for that reason. But universal basic equity is different because equity is something that you earn. Uh, and if you're using the platform, you can still generate equity in this, but actually if you generate more valuable data or actually from an incentive mechanism, if you know that you can earn because of the fact that you're creating valuable data, then what happens is, is that you will ultimately make your data more valuable because there is an incentive. And the reason why equity is important is because it's a long-term. But similarly to capital, um, it ends up becoming sort of dilutive if you don't contribute. In other words, if you don't contribute, then you probably shouldn't be receiving more equity. But if you do contribute, you do receive more equity. And if you just want to sit back and say, okay, I'm happy to just 
accumulate, there is ultimately an inflationary effect that happens, which traditional capitalism doesn't account for except through taxes, you know, and, and, and that's the mechanism which you do. So, so, so blockchain and tokenization essentially creates a really fascinating way to create sort of a stakeholder relationship that is meaningful, a stakeholder relationship in which we have basically a truly shared network effect. And that's what we are building towards. And that's what we believe uh, will happen, you know, you know, certainly by 2030, it'll be a lot more people, we're hoping, um, you know, uh, hopefully we'll cross a billion people plus by then. However, you know, it to us is an inevitable path because that it's just a better outcome for everyone. The mental model I sometimes ask myself is like, you know, why doesn't every Uber driver earn shares in Uber? Like if you think about it, right? It just doesn't, it's just strange, right? That you're, you're you know, and, and on one hand, you people might celebrate the idea that, hey, we don't have to give any shares to the people who effectively make Uber. And what a great business model. That's shareholder capitalism. And I guess you could say in one way would sound, um, would sound perhaps short-term attractive, but it's unsustainable because what happens is, is that you extract so much and people don't really love Uber, <laughs> right? And you don't have long-term effects of this because eventually someone else will either disrupt them or don't want to do that or whichever, because it's, 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 not, um, it's not a sustainable relationship. And so I think of what's happening with tokenization in Web3 as creating sustainable financial incentive relationships between the groups that we're working with, which is, you know, the work that you do, right, at, uh, you know, with token designs. How do you create sustainable long-term relationships with all of your key stakeholders as opposed to one that is maximum extractive, which might give you a lot of value in, the, in one or two years, but will ultimately die over any, any course longer than that, as we have seen with token projects, for instance, that, that follow this model, uh, because, because uh, it's purely extractive in nature. And that, by the way, is what we do in real life too. I mean, it's the difference between whether you want to destroy the earth and extract as much value as you can, or you're willing to invest a little bit more to still make value, but do it in a manner that's sustainable so it doesn't basically sort of create scorched earth effects. Right, so so that that that's it's it's another kind of uh, sort of sustainability. It's financial sustainability, which I think is ne necessary, because if we don't have a financial sustainable thinking, then we can't actually have the luxury to think about ESG broadly speaking. You know, this is a common discussion because for a lot of people in the West, right, they're like, well, you know, why is China not sort of you know, uh, or like developing countries that are responsible for all this emission and everything, you know, they should, they should cut. Well, the problem is, is that they're not ready to do so. You can't ask those families that are basically depending on, you know, very, very low salaries to do the work that is arguably financially, uh, let's say, less rewarding, of course, but uh, maybe less sustainable in terms of environmental. Um, you can't ask them to make that choice uh, because it affects their children, right? They don't, they're not there at this level. Um, and people also forget that, you know, where was the UK 150 years ago in terms of, I mean, the, the skies were black, right? You know, so, so they went through that cycle. Um, and of course, they don't remember that because they weren't born then. Um, and so you have to get first to a point where you are financially secure enough before you can really start thinking about, okay, so now we have to worry about the next level stuff. And I think it's just a matter of evolution. They'll get there, right? China is there now, right? But China wasn't there 15 years ago because 15 years ago, most people still relied on, you know, the kind of jobs that will just basically keep them going uh, as opposed to where now, you know, China has a much bigger middle class and a lot of young Chinese people are thinking about a future which needs to be greener, which is why China is now one of the largest green energy and, and solar investors in the world. 
But again, that would not be a conversation you could have with people in China 20, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so yeah, you did mention kind of a decentralized Uber. So me and Mo, we had had multiple discussion around this thesis, proof mm. of useful work, where you have token incentive and equitable take rates, uh, and, and you can literally bootstrap a network. So so thinking along the lines of decentralized Airbnb, decentralized mm. Justeed, decentralized, like you, you already see, see that with Helium, decentralized Telecom, yes. decentralized Google Maps, and all of this... Uh, can be possible with token incentives in exchange for your data or in exchange for a central kind of action. So mm. we are. Uh, so this is something which, which you're very excited about, and 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 one of the themes we which is kind of close to heart as well. Yes, absolutely, very very important. Yeah, you saw the potential of NFTs in 2017 when Animoca pivoted into Web3. What do you think will be the next big innovation or explosive trend? Looking back a little bit. You know, we got involved in the whole uh, sort of NFT space through CryptoKitties. Um, you know, we were uh, actually uh, just in the middle of, actually at that point, we may have already completed our acquisition of a company called Fuel Powered, and it shared its office with another company called Axiom Zen. And uh, they were basically developing this little thing called CryptoKitties, which again, you know, uh, as it sometimes so often happens, is was really meant to be more of an experiment than sort of the birth of what ultimately became Dapper Labs. And the co-founder of Fuel Powered, Mick, ended up becoming uh, you know, one of the co-founders of, uh, of Dapper Labs. And as part of the sort of arrangement, we ended up being publishers for CryptoKitties in our region, uh, became shareholders in Dapper Labs. And, and, and when we saw what was possible, and again, you know, we, weren't, uh, we weren't sort of, that's why I said earlier, we're not the classic crypto OGs as in you know, um, Bitcoin, you know, 2009 or, or sort of some period like that, or sort of participated in the Ethereum ICO. No, we're, we're, not, we're not that group because the, the emphasis at the time was very financial for at least the crypto world at the time. And so it was something a little bit alien to us. Uh, although we understand, of course, the importance of money and you know, we, we could consider ourselves financially sophisticated, it didn't really click for us. Uh, but when we saw CryptoKitties and NFTs, that was culture, that clicked for us because we uh, created this connection between what we always desire to do, which is how do I own our video game assets? Uh, because video game assets are part of our identity. For those who have been playing games for a long time, whether it's World of Warcraft or Ultima Online, even in the early days, or multi-user dungeons, we associate those characters much more deeply than just its utility, right? Like, like you have an identity, you, 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 can, you can recite the lore of these places, which are entirely fictional, by the way, uh, as, as, as basically a form of mythology that forms of who you are. <laughs> you know, some people are in love with Greek mythology. Some people are in love with, you know, basically, um, you know, Marvel, right? Uh, some people are in love with all sorts of things. Harry Potter, for instance. I mean, these are all fictional universes that are created in which we have deep connections with. Uh, but with gaming, we can own them, or we think at least we thought we owned them because of the immersive nature of it and the fact that within that world, the rules were such that they were supposed to be yours. But of course, reality is they're not. And we recognize that because every time a game dies, uh, as it so often does, everything you owned in that game or you thought you owned would die with it. And, and that was sort of the birth of this thinking of actually sort of NFTs in gaming, that should be the future. Uh, at least that's what we thought would happen. And that's when we started investing heavily. This was really in January 2018 when we started sort of not just with Dapper Labs, we 
you know, we started sort of uh, working with companies like, you know, again, very early, like OpenSea. Uh, we ended up acquiring the Sandbox, which was at the time was Pixel. Um, we ended up investing in Axie Infinity uh, and also in Wax, uh, built relationships and also invested in like what used to be called Matic and now Polygon. And, you know, today we have over 380 plus companies um, in sort of the Animoca family. But, but again, the idea was really just this high conviction that digital ownership in, in games uh, is, going to, is going to really drive digital ownership in everything. So the reason we focused on the gaming side of things was because we felt that gamers already, broadly speaking, had a relationship with their virtual goods as one of ownership. Right? If you if you ask our children about their Fortnite skins or anyone who put it in and say, hey, do you know that you're renting this? Not, their natural response is not going to be, what? Right? It's like, what do you mean renting? Right? They, they think they own it because it's that natural assumption of the experience and what they should, you know, everyone thinks they should be owning, you know, but what, what, what they have inside their games until they realize they don't, you know, usually in an event of when their account is banned or, you know, when they get locked out or when the game shuts down or they change the terms of service. That's the other thing, right? Uh, you know, where, where an item that had certain value or certain potential gets nerfed and it gets nerfed because the platform has to do it to either generate more revenue or to what they call game balancing, uh, because maybe some other player uh, basically uh, was concerned around it. But why did this change happen? They didn't ask for consensus of the players as to should we make this change. They just went ahead and pushed the button and said, we're going to do this. Uh, and, and, and obviously, all these things just demonstrate so clearly that we have no ownership. And, and what we posited at the time is that if we can do this through gaming, you know, content as being the platform, which is basically the ownership paradigm, could then basically allow the construction for these uh, sort of additional network effects that would then mushroom all sorts of new businesses uh, that we can imagine on top of the ownership of other people's game assets. So for meaning that if I was able to decentralize my ownership of the Fortnite assets and Fortnite customers, as it were, through the ownership of their skins, then we're going to probably see thousands of new businesses emerge that aren't just all games. There's going to be a lot of game companies that will use the skins in their games as a, as a means of just simply attracting the customer base. But there's going to be all sorts of new services that will emerge because it is a base of tens of millions of customers that you can reach for an asset or product that uh, has some kind of service that we may not have imagined. So, for instance, in, 20, uh, in, in, in um, uh, 2018, 2019, we would not have imagined NFT lending to be a thing, nor would we have managed... Uh, I've sort of looked at things like what, you know, um, Sudo did with AMMs on NFTs or what Blur is doing today in terms of, you know, the whole NFT sort of, uh, uh, sort of um, uh, incentive, uh, sort, of, uh, uh, sort of trading mechanisms that they built in as an example, right? I mean, these are just e examples that are completely uh, sort of non sort of culture related, if you will. Uh, they're very financial in nature, but they created additional network effects that would be impossible to do inside games because of the fact that they are now free moving assets that are basically your property. Uh, so that's, that's how it started. The other thing is that if you look at the lens of history, gaming is probably perhaps the only category at scale that is digitally native. So most other assets are connected to the real world in some form and you know, you need oracles. And I think that's very important too. I do believe in the future where you know, ownership of an NFT contract 
would give you ownership in something physical when we get to the legal perspectives and when that's all sorted, because it's more efficient, it's transparent, it's clear. There's a whole thing, a whole bunch of things that I think become beneficial. But digital items are actually the opposite uh, in games, I mean. So meaning that it starts through a digital construct as it's entirely virtual, and then it moves and influences the physical world. And that's kind of what we are most interested in for the time being, because that's actually the space, I think, which will grow faster, at least in the in the near to midterm, uh, we wouldn't have, you know, these fancy uh, sort of, you know, curved screens, nor would we have PlayStation or Xbox, or nor would we have industries like Razer or Steel Media, or, you know, gaming chairs, right, or all this type of stuff, if it wasn't for games. But what was the origin of games? Entirely virtual stuff, <laughs> right? It, 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 it didn't, it started for our ability to have utility or better utility or, or in some cases, better fashion inside the video game experience. I mean, you know, my Steel Series keyboard is like sort of, you know, it's, it's like it's like uh, it's, it's like it's 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 got neon lights, for instance. Right. I mean, really, who, who needs neon lights, actually? I mean, for for <laughs> and, and, you know, Razer has some beautiful ones and they they, they change the color. So I have a I have another sort of a, I've, I've got another sort of Razer Razer gaming pad. Right. And, uh, and that sort of, you know, shines blue and red, right? Uh, and then my mouse basically has changes its colors based on the heartbeat or some pulse, right? I mean, really, like to play a game well, you need none of that. None, none of that is actually important. But, you know, it's emerged entirely out of gaming culture. It's, it's, it's digitally native, right? No NVIDIA, no, uh, I guess now AMD used to be ATI, right? All of these super fast graphic cards, uh, would not happen if it wasn't for the gaming industry. So, so that's why we focused on gaming outside of the fact that we also had you know expertise in gaming, because gaming has had this history of bringing virtual things uh, with impact in the physical world to the point where it's an industry today that's larger than film and music combined, uh, born entirely virtual. So, so that's that's the reason we focused on gaming, which is still something we believe will be a big focus point. Uh, for at least the near to midterm, uh, but unlike 2018 and 2019, where nobody was investing in that field, we now have many people investing in that field, uh, and and so I would say you know it's great because it fuels the industry, uh, and of course we continue to do so. But we have many friends uh, that help us sort of push that industry forward. So to me, gaming and Web three and blockchain, that whole combination is a foregone conclusion. Like it's going to happen in a really really big way, and we think it will happen within the next 12 to 18 months. So we've seen that there are multiple blockers to adoption. And for me, one of the biggest things has been the focus on the tech, on the back end. But we haven't really had the focus on the front end experiences and, and the genuine activation of communities. What are your thoughts around that? Well, I think, first of all, WhatsApp is a great example because WhatsApp, the reason you're using WhatsApp is because of its network effect. And, you know, when you think of it back in the lens of a, of a nation, as it were, right? There may be places in the world in which you are so married to the network effects that are embedded within that place. And this could be a country, or this could be a place you work in, right? or this could be an environment you're in, whichever that is, that leaving seems too expensive despite the cost associated. Uh, you know, and in the classic term, like certainly for, you know, like I, I'm, you know, my family are immigrants, and I think many people around the world have sort of immigrant experiences. Things have to get really, really bad <laughs> before you say, okay, I'm leaving the country, right? Because the cost, the switching cost is high, right? You, you pack your bags, you pretty much give up everything that you had before. 
Uh, and giving up, by the way, isn't just potentially your house or maybe your material objects. It's giving up all your influence, all the networks you built, right? You know, all these stories about people who, you know, left sort of countries like Somalia or back in the day, China, say, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, they might have been um, professors of status in their place. And then they go to America and they end up basically, you know, being housekeepers or taxi drivers, right? I mean, these are, these are the examples of what you sacrifice when you surrender your network effects of one place to the other, right? But there has to be obviously a cost to grade. And in many cases, we can probably sort of empathize or sympathize even with, uh, with the ones that had to go through this because, you know, when, when your life is literally at risk and they're like, that's okay, I, you know, I'll, I'll be a taxi driver. Let's go, let's forget all of that, right? You know, um, but you know, as we've also seen, that's not true for everyone, right? Uh, they, they have to measure against it. And I think in a smaller um, but still meaningful way, we see this what's happening with our legacy Web2 experiences. We have difficulties leaving what's happened. We have difficulties leaving Facebook or Instagram because of the embedded network effects that exist there, for instance. You, you're, you're attached to it because you have influence. People know you there. Uh, but the one thing that I think makes this uh, easier for the digital world is you don't have borders. Right. Uh, so meaning that your switching cost is much lower. Uh, and, and as a result, as we see today, even though WhatsApp is very influential, it is being challenged by Telegram and by Signal and by all these other sort of new messaging platforms that are out there. And you have choice. And where it used to be that I had to use WhatsApp because everyone was using WhatsApp. Actually, if I say I'm on Telegram or I'm on Signal, they're like, oh, OK, um, I can do that, too. Right. So so I think I think that's where that's where uh, this is obviously going to be, um, be be a little different. So, so, so yeah, you did mention Blur, e even though great example of airdrops. Uh, but what we're seeing now in the industry is kind of NFT royalty war. So how do you uh, kind of, like, what do you think is the end game here? How do you kind of envision all of this playing out? And what are your <clears throat> views on this? Yeah, so first of all, I think uh, we have, the solution that we have uh, proposed is one, I guess everyone has to basically create um, sort of their versions of the, uh, let's call it allow list type of approach so that at least Blur and OpenSea enforce royalties. Uh, that's what we did with Mochaverse. And as a result, we are able to enforce the royalties there. That's at least um, for, the, for the time being. But at the end of the day, it's still up to the platform, in this case, Blur and OpenSea and Magic Eden and you know, all those other guys to actually choose to enforce it or not, because it's obviously not a specific smart contract thing. Uh, and that's kind of why we came out with the licensing agreement structure as well. Um, but before I go into how the licensing agreement works, uh, which by the way is freely downloadable, everyone can use it, and we encourage everyone to have it because at least gives the the optionality to pursue legal claims um, if you so choose. Uh, the reason why royalties is so important, and there's a lot of conversations around this because you know even as I wrote about this, people some people are like, oh no, we shouldn't pay royalties. It's it's my property. I, I should decide whatever I want with it, right? Is the point that in the same way that we think of sort of why gas on Ethereum is the engine that keeps gas going, royalties is the engine that basically keeps the whole cultural, uh, cult creative, independent creative culture movement going. Because if you don't have that, then you go back into centralization. One of the benefits of value distribution is that where is, is, is really value distribution is power distribution. So if you want to have uh, a decentralized network, you need to ensure that the monetary benefits is also distributed appropriately. If it's not, 
then you have a concentration effect. And the concentration effect are the ones who end up enforcing it, which we're seeing in Web2. So royalties cannot be enforced in Web2. Therefore, they have to be given to Spotify to enforce, or they have to be given to you know, a, a big platform or to Apple or whatever to enforce. Well, when they do so, they then come in control of this. We've seen this story before, by the way, right? When the music industry was struggling with piracy, uh, something like ASCAP was formed. And ASCAP basically was effectively a royalty enforcement mechanism that all musical artists and creators would put forward. But then they became so powerful uh, and then they started putting terms and then they started charging more and they started basically suddenly becoming, you know, a monster when they were supposed to be there to protect the creators. Why? Because they started to accumulate power. And it goes back to this classic, uh, classic sort of old, old saying, right? You know, um, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And, and, and it's not because necessarily the people who were thinking about it had bad intents, right? Um, like, for instance, I didn't think, I don't think that, you know, Facebook for all the negative things that they ended up being responsible for, uh, that this was ever in their plan, right? I think everyone who was working there has great intentions and really firmly believed that they were doing good in the world until it wasn't. Uh, and that's because once you have absolute power, you end up doing things that are in the interest of you, uh, the minority, as opposed to something that is in the interest of the majority. Uh, that's that's very classic. And you end up basically just ultimately doing actions that you know you no longer that no longer serve the interests of actually your users. And that's happened with ASCAP, it's happened with Spotify, it's happened with Facebook. Okay, so how do we solve this? Well, we solve this by ensuring that the that the power distribution is distributed. How do you distribute the power distribution? By making sure that the value is appropriately distributed. So you have this uh, sort of a counteraction because value and power are very much um, correlated, right? Especially in a capitalist framework, right? Now, if you do away with capitalism, if that's ever possible, then maybe status is power. But in this case, you know, money is power. And so you have to make sure that that's appropriately distributed. Imagine you know, what that looks like in an L1 blockchain, where all of the values generated by just a few block producers, for instance, you know, what would that network look like, right? I mean, that would actually be a terrible outcome, right? And, and creators are basically sort of a meta above, and they are form part of that sort of important ecosystem. And this is the other part around why royalties are important, because, uh, and this frankly is what gets me often uh, in terms of, you know, where I'm most more upset is, that the ability to participate at ground zero and then to add value to the network and therefore benefit from that comes from the ability that you can have a low cost to free mint. I mean, look at Mochaverse as a most recent example. I mean, the mint effectively was less than $200 for two NFTs. And now, you know, through their, you know, and again, it's short term for now, but the, the, the network effects generated, um, people are sitting on, you know, uh, you know, what is it like? I think it's like a 1.6 or 1.7 ETH floor for each of them, right? So you're basically sitting on, you know, tremendous value, but the short-term perspective is to say, oh, I only paid $200 and now I have like, you know, I know five or six or $7,000. That's one way to look at it. But actually the more appropriate way to look at it from our perspective is that's what you see right now. But if you continue to contribute to the network, you know, because you added value to it, the, the value of that ownership could potentially increase because you are now a part contributor to the network and you become an equity holder, right? It's, it's this high, whole idea that everything we add to, we are now part of that equity road. And the royalties and the trading is a kind of network effect in which is then shared across everyone, as opposed to saying, 
hey, I'm going to keep paying the company, in this case us, more stuff so that you can do more stuff with it. That's different because it requires us to constantly dilute or I have to tax your ownership uh, for that, which obviously is, um, is, is a problem as well. You wouldn't have board apes. You wouldn't have cool cats. Uh, you wouldn't have any of those if it wasn't for the royalties uh, that are generated from it, which then allowed them to do things like, you know, Dookie Dash or mutant apes or kennel dogs, right? All of those benefits came from the royalties. And so why, why, why I often get sort of a little bit sort of um, upset about people like, well, you know, no, we shouldn't pay any royalties. It's like the only reason that this trading community can generate this value is because of royalties, right? So, 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 you know, and, and, and so it's such short-term thinking that they don't understand, or maybe they don't want to understand that actually, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have mutants and apes and cool cats and all those things, uh, you know, to trade uh, if it, um, as a result of that ecosystem was born, right? Uh, and if we end up going down that direction, then we end up having sort of a tragedy of the commons effect. Because even though uh, most artists, you know, I, I think most artists uh, don't have the capacity to build like big teams. They don't, you know, uh, I mean, people forget that, you know, Yuga also was a very small team as well, right? Um, and <laughs> and, and as, as these things grow, you, 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 they have a way in which they can finance themselves. The criticism, by the way, that people say is, well, I know this artist is just, you know, sipping cocktails in the Bahamas. He's not doing that much. He's, 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 he's just living off the royalties and it's like his, 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 um, you know, and, and that's not fair. Okay. Well, my response to that is that one, you know, don't buy his NFT, don't trade them. Right. I mean, you know, that's, you don't have to, you don't have to own that person's NFT. Right. But the other thing is, and I think of this very much similar to angel investing or generally investing in an infrastructure is that you can't expect that every single investment or every single participation of what you purchase has, you know, um, uh, sort of a maximized profit outcome. In fact, one of the reasons we also invest the way that we do is that it actually fuels an ecosystem. In other words, the reason we get to benefit on our successes is because we also fuel the losses. And I don't mean that in the sense of we're intentionally throwing money out. We're investing in the ecosystem and recognizing that we won't win everywhere because it's not possible, but in so doing, build the talent pool. Now, this is something that governments in the past used to do, right? Um, that's what education in a way is as well. We train it. That's not a sort of positive P&L, but it, you know, not every person that you send to school is going to come out basically changing the world, right? But a certain number of them will do. A certain number of them will come out. And, and while the relative investment that we might give to every person in the world in a sort of a national sense is broadly the same, the outcomes will vary, and that's part of the expectation. You know, if Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, didn't have an angel investing culture, of which, by the way, most angel investments don't do well, right? Then you won't have Silicon Valley. There won't be a VC industry. You won't have Google. You won't have Hewlett Packard. You won't have any of these things if it wasn't for the fact that we have a vibrant community that accepts that, you know, that by investing, they're also supporting an ecosystem of growth, right? Uh, and, and I think this comes down to, again, a culture because investing, angel investing in the, in the Bay Area is a culture as well, right? Uh, you know, the, the Google engineer does it from the sort of, you know, the, the real estate agent does it. Like it, it's like just part of the nature of what it is. And, and of course, everyone hopes to not lose money, but it's a part of, of what you do. 
But if it's taken over entirely by a pure trader mentality, then uh, which, which I think is a negative, then you end up creating a situation where it's purely viewed as how much can I extract from it. Uh, and, and the other thing, of course, is that the creator of this item has rules set, and they were maybe not legal rules. They were basically sort of, let's call it uh, like a, like social norms, right, in the past, certainly. Right? There was no, there's nothing necessarily in the terms of service that says you must pay 5% or 2% or whatever royalty. It was simply sort of a gentleman's agreement, you could say, that allowed people to facilitate this industry. And it worked very well for a few years until, you know, the, the recent royalty wars. And, and, um, and I think the, the issue with that, of course, is that then people, uh, you know, the platforms start to violate this as something that is not part of their, um, of, of, of their agreement, but they do so to accrue value to their network at the expense of the creator. So by creating zero royalties on a famous collection, what are you doing? You're accruing a network to you. You're saying, I have a cheaper price for you, but at whose expense? At the expense of the creator, right? And, and this is where I also say, well, you know, all of you guys who are sort of free market traders, uh, free market loving uh, sort of capitalist traders, you know, you cherish your liberal values. Well, where's your liberal values here now, right? You're basically saying, well, you know, it's liberal as long as it works for me, but I'm gonna trample on all over someone else's rights by taking away basically his, his, uh, his understanding of the agreement because it suits me. That's not liberalism. That's actually, uh, that's bullying actually. So, uh, and, and, and so that, that's the other thing, right? I think a lot of people in the space uh, sometimes don't, view and have a sort of understanding as to how actually free markets work, right? Free markets work very well, but you have to have a common understanding as to make it sustainable. If you, if, if, uh, if it's purely viewed from an extractive perspective, then it's, it's not going to work. So, so we're very pro creator. We think it's very important. If a creator wants to say zero royalties, it is a choice of the creator. If the creator says, look, I'm going to create a model that I have, is a different form of sustainability um, to acquire customers, then that's, the creator's choice to do so. But in the past, creators, when they you know, um, decide the royalties, don't have, you know, they don't consult lawyers on day one. It's not like, okay, let's do, let's do our art and uh, which law firm should I call? <laughs> it's, not, it's not the first thing you think about. Um, and, and so as a result, they're not thought about the legal protections. That's where the NFT license comes in. And the way the NFT license works is that if you end up, uh, if you end up violating the the uh, if you end up violating basically the royalty as it were, then the platform uh, engages in a secondary copyright violation. Um, so so that means that even though the end user may have done the the sort of uh, negative act, you had still are the one who facilitated it and therefore are also liable. Right? Uh, and this is this has precedent with you know things like YouTube and so on. Um, and now eventually over time. Uh, there's sufficient value that is worth enforcing it. I mean, royalties lost already exceeded 18,000 ETH, uh, which is like $30 billion plus, give or take. Uh, that's enough money for, for people to sort of, uh, sort of go after if they, if they wanted to. Um, so that's... So that's, yes, will that's the important. licensing agreement, will, will the license live on the metadata of the NFTs? So, I mean, right now, the license agreement could live on the metadata, uh, but for the time being... You know, it's really a terms of service that for the most part, people can just put on the website as they do. Um, and there's, you know, and there's different license agreements that you have to be mindful of. Uh, uh, the, the key point, though, is that you give notification to the platform. So you tell the platform. So the platform 
under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act can basically say, I didn't know that. That wasn't me. I'm not responsible. Sorry about that. Um, so the reason you send a notice is to say, hey, I just want to let you know that you're actually violating my copyright. And so you have to either enforce or take it down. At that point, they don't have an excuse anymore to say, I don't know about it. They could say, if they wanted to, they could say, oh, actually, your terms of service is not on the metadata. And, you know, how do I know that is, I mean, it's possible they could do that. But in most cases, we also think that that's not very practical. Uh, instead, you know, the easiest and less liable path is to just take it down or just to enforce the royalties, right? Um, so, so, so I think from that perspective, because I think while this hasn't been tested in court, I think the risk actually itself is, uh, is, is too great. Why, why take it? And one of the reasons why the royalty wars came about is because it was possible for other players to take advantage of it because there was no way to keep the market level. So if everyone was now bound by a legal structure um, where they could potentially accrue liability, then everything we think will go back to paying royalties because it's not that the platforms don't want to pay royalty. It's the fact that there's a small number of these platforms that actually uh, wanted to just gain market share at the expense of other people's royalties. But at this point, you know, if we have a common understanding, I think we will go back to uh, a royalty environment. And this is why Blur and OpenSea, for instance, are enforcing royalties if you basically enforce it um, or have basically sort of the, the, the allow list approach. Uh, that's that's why they do that. But they could still change that in the future. And that's what we want to protect against. So about six months ago, um, soulbound tokens or SBTs became a big thing. We don't have a, a set standard within the ecosystem yet, but they're going to be used for reputation. So what, what's your views on soulbound tokens and, and accruing reputation? Well, I mean, I think soulbound tokens are just another example of a fascinating approach in terms of innovation in the space, right? How do you basically create more sort of um, proof of verification? How do you create a situation where you um, sort of can enhance, I guess, in some aspects, uh, the same effect of personal reputation as you do in the physical world, as you do in the digital one, right? In other words, you know, I can't just sort of move from place to place and pretend that I am not the, uh, a different person uh, in some ways, right? And that's, you know, I guess where a part of the world is going, right? In terms of, you know, oh, this, this, this soulbound token is KYC'd and it's approved. And so therefore it could be more frictionless uh, transactions because, you know, all of these things and, and it's part of your identity. So I do think that is very valuable, but I think one of the other things to be mindful of, and maybe this is a situation where we have multiple soulbound tokens or, you know, is about the way that we exist as multiple identities, right? I spoke earlier about the fact that we are already sort of multinationals not necessarily in a passport sense, but in a tribal sort of community sense. Yeah, I'm a member of the Board Apes and I'm a member of Cool Cats, but I'm also someone who lives in Hong Kong and I'm, you know, uh, ethnically Chinese, but I also am connected to Austria, right? I mean, and by the way, I am probably different than I am with my family with a different community network than I am professionally with people at work uh, or maybe even with people that I studied. Right? And I think if we just take that particular lens in terms of who we are, we are already living multiple identities, not in the sort of, um, sort of let's call it like change your face type of thing. I mean, that's kind of what happens in a virtual space, you could say, like you could be, you could be, you know, you could be a, a sort of a blue-eyed, uh, a blue-eyed sort of humanoid in, uh, sorry, a blue-skinned a, a blue humanoid in, in your favorite video game. Uh, but then in the physical world, you are something else. That's, that's one way to look at it. But we already have, we already have these multiple identities. Uh, we are different. 
and we behave differently amongst different groups of people because of you know our social construct around them and that means that you if we tie it only to one single identity i think it i do think there is some struggle that i have with that because we are not all the same right uh, all the time to the same people like i'm not the same at work than i am with my family um for the for 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 things we share or do and by the way there are things that i would do together with my family that i don't want people at work to know that i'm doing for instance because it's my private life right so at the heart of it privacy is still a really really important part of that now you can obviously use privacy uh by a sort of you know with, with you know in on-chain transactions as well you can obfuscate things there's ways ways around that but then how do you invest for instance in the identity of that soulbound token if there are things you can't show for that community it's like that's why you know i think this space still needs to evolve is it a case where you have multiple soulbound tokens i mean the thing that we're seeing for instance right now is uh you know with with the most recent mochaverse mint the whitelist uh, was traded on a wallet basis. People were trading their whitelist wallets uh, for, and we saw this with the other deed as well, and probably many other NFT projects out there where people start trading them because of the fact that they they, they see benefit. Uh, and then what happens if you know it's tied to a soulbound token, right? You know you can't, you obviously can't. The whole point is that you can't can't trade them. Uh, and and can you really sort of go around that because your identity could sort of be passed on at a wallet level? Right, so there's there's some very interesting implications. I do, however, believe that uh, you need a system that can tie in to your ultimate identity in a manner that is sort of uh, trustless and safe. And I think soulbound tokens are a really good step in that direction. But I think it needs some evolving as it's trying to sort of emulate, I guess, in some ways, sort of our physical existence. DAO is another big buzzword in this space, and it's something that you've definitely been down the rabbit hole and you've been on an adventure within DAOs. What have you learned with respect to the evolution of corporate governance and democracies? So DAOs to me are really fascinating. I think DAOs are the future of organizations. I think DAOs are also um, going to be bigger than companies, as many of them are, and consequently are going to potentially, therefore, are bigger than many of the countries we see today. So just to give some context, I mean, I'm involved at the moment at the Special Council at the ApeCoin DAO, but the not the the treasury being sort of a, a billion dollar plus treasury uh, gives it basically the community a way in which they can decide how it gets sort of used and granted to to help grow that ecosystem and the common criticisms that a lot of people have said about DAOs or generally democratic approaches at, at sort of what you could call work is that it's very difficult to get consensus and it's very difficult to agree on a direction and that is true, of course, because, you know, it's not like some CEO at the top that says, let's go do this. And our founders and we all will go in this direction and, you know, come hell or high water, we're going to make it happen. Uh, whether it's a good idea or not, <laughs> you know, that's a different thing. Uh, they're just going to do it. And as a result, outcomes can happen faster. Right? So that's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it from a DAO perspective is that if you actually create a product that has been generated from an initial consensus by its very community, then the community has bought into it. You don't have to sell them something. They already said, we agree to do this. And as a result, they are also taking accountability because they're voting with their own token, which means to me, it's a stronger foundation of community because they become a stakeholder. So again, we go back to this idea of digital property rights. Well, if you have digital property, the health of the property doesn't just come from the fact that I own something. It also comes because it deepens 
your affection and your accountability. Right? If I own, you know, if, if we're owners in our neighborhood of, of whatever district we live in, and if something happens in our neighborhood that we don't like, we tend to want to take care of it, whether we call the police, whether we say, hey, get rid of that graffiti, whether we say, there's something that comes where we are accountable, not just to our own house, but to the community at large because of ownership. And that is sort of one way to think about it when you have ownership in a DAO, because by holding tokens, whether they be NFTs or whether they be fungible tokens, you are now accountable for success and you are seeking to protect it. But the process of getting there to having that understanding is a process in and of itself, and that's education. And I view it very similarly to how we need to edu continue to educate people about the values of democracy. But I mean, actually, you know, think about it, democratic turnout actually tends to be often higher in young democracies um, that are bona fide democracy, of course, uh, relative to the more mature ones, because we take our democratic processes for granted because it's always been like this. So, and, and then suddenly we're overcome in some cases by a sense of powerlessness. We're like, well, you know, I'm only one of a hundred million. So does it really matter? Nah, I'm not going to really bother. Right. Uh, obviously that's not true, but that's what a lot of people sometimes feel. And that's because we don't get to flex the democratic muscle very frequently. I mean, normally at work, it's not very democratic. When you go to school, it's not democratic at all. Like, I mean, just think about the formation years as a student. A right? teacher tells you what to do, you follow instruction. Uh, you know, it's not like, well, would you like to learn math today? Or would you like to study the sciences? Would you, <laughs> like, there's, there's no process of real choices that happen for most part of your life, right? Even in your own family household, if mom and dad say so, then you do it. It's understandable why that is, right? But the thing is, you don't get to flex that muscle. And so then suddenly, you know, you become 18 or in some cases 21 and you're like, okay, you can vote. Like, uh, <laughs> what do I do with that, right? Why is that important for me? Um, yeah, I read about the French Revolution maybe and oh, the constitution, right? It's very distant stuff. It doesn't really create a connection uh, with, with, with you as an individual, right? Um, so unless you are someone who's in political science or you care about that stuff, it's really hard to, to do that. And then do you look at the, at, at the way you engage in the rest of your life, <clears throat> whether you're on Facebook or whether you're on Instagram or whether you're on playing your favorite games, there's nothing democratic about that experience whatsoever, right? So DAOs to me play a really important role in that because now through digital ownership, through participation, even inside a game that's run by a DAO or a sort of, you know, ecosystem like ApeCoin, for instance, you know, I am now able to vote on things and I can participate and I can make proposals. And so what we saw with ApeCoin was in the beginning, there was very few proposals because people maybe were cynical or didn't understand it. Participation was relatively low. Now we've come to a point where participation is much higher. We've got separate working groups. It's been sort of decentralized. We've got, um, we just went through um, not too long ago, an election where we've had, you know, basically three new council members that were elected from the community with, with, with very active high turnout participation. There was lobbying. Twitter spaces, you know, it was basically the beginning of a true democratic process. And, you know, it's imperfect. We know this, but we've, we've, we've had talks with people who came on spaces and said, I've never voted in my life, but I voted here. And that to me is actually a kind of victory because now you're telling people what actually the value of democracy is. And that is not just something that you do maybe once every four years uh, or once every two years, but it's something that you can do in every part of your life and that you can evolve through that. And it builds a stakeholder relationship between, you know, in the future, even with companies and organizations where, where, where you can be heard, 
um, uh, in a different way. So I actually think that you know DAOs actually will reinvigorate basically the democratic idea and democratic process because you'll have so many thousands of DAOs sort of evolve and emerge. Many of them, by the way, won't work. And that's okay, because just like you have with technology and products, you can at least experiment on them. Because it's very hard to experiment on the democratic system. You know, if you screwed up, it has very, very bad consequences, right? But if you do that in essentially a, game, a video game with a small community of a thousand or then 10,000 or maybe 100,000, you can actually experiment. I actually think that democratic institutions will learn from DAOs as a result. They say, hey, that worked really well here. Maybe we should bring that in. Maybe we can think about the structure slightly differently. Uh, we have a very, uh, so if you think about sort of how the, you know, American constitution is set up, it's pretty amazing that it has somewhat withstood the test of time so far, which just indicated sort of the foresight of, of um, um, you know, of, of, of how it was created. But the world changes so rapidly and new ideas need to come up. And I think DAOs can present that. DAOs today are about $12 billion of collective treasury. That's a lot of money. That, by the way, is roughly the size of the, um, that, that, is, uh, that is actually, I think, the size of a small country's um, sort of federal reserve. Right? So while it's obviously not in one entity, it's actually quite meaningful when you think about it, what that $12 billion size, except it is not a sort of single official or single representative that does that. It's actually you know, the will of the people who basically get to vote on how that gets used. And so that's 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 fascinating and that's very empowering and and I think that the Dow Treasuries are just going to keep growing and as they keep growing, um, so does its meaning and importance. Uh, and and ultimately, we need to engage this way where we have to understand the politics of our world because we engage in this way, and we can't just say this is not for me. We step out because if we totally step out of that, then we're actually also um, removing ourselves and being unaccountable for our role in society. Like voting is a duty. It is a duty to make sure that the society is run the way that it is to protect what you want, right? Even if you think your one vote is meaningless, you should still vote. In some countries, voting is mandatory, right? But in many places, it's not. Um, and as a result, um, we take it for granted. And I think that's dangerous. So, so yet, uh, now we'll be, now we'll, we will segue into the last segment of the podcast. This is the fun one. So there will be a, a, a rapid fire round. Um, sure. So the first question is, your top five NFT collection that you own or are excited about? <laughs> you know, that's that's a really unfair question because it's a little bit like pick your favorite kids. Um, and, you know, I, I can't do that. But anyway, if I was to pick sort of the 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 uh, five that come come to mind right now. So obviously Bored Apes is one that I'm a big fan of. I mean, I can't obviously not include Mochaverse. Mochaverse is just um, the most recent mint. We're super excited about that. Um, you know, I, I don't know what they're going to look like. You know, the reveal will happen soon. Uh, you know, big fans of Cool Cats as well. I think there's some fascinating things uh, that we could see there. And then, of course, um, you know, uh, Sandbox. I mean, these are, you know, it's very near and dear, shall we say, to sort of, I guess, our personal sort of hard as any Mocha brands uh, because of the history of the company, right? Um, the, the, the land in Sandbox, but also the, of course, the assets created. Uh, and then finally, you know, uh, so I guess you called it my my, my sort of uh, sort of sort of personal one that I like a lot is um, is is Talk Squad. Talk Squad is doing a lot of things. Most people don't realize that the Rev ecosystem actually has over two hundred people working on some cool stuff there. But of course, it's a little bit sort of um, still on 
on the sort of quasi secret side, um, you know, we, we have new management, we have new teams building stuff. So that makes me excited about sort of the future of where Torx Squad goes as the sort of Rev um, NFT collection. So yeah, what was the last thing you Googled? Uh, <laughs> so, so the last thing, uh, the last thing I Googled um, was actually something. Uh, so I was just preparing for a. Uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm talking at TED in, and so I'm actually working on my talk. And so I was just actually um, googling basically some some economic statistics of different countries as I'm trying to compare basically sort of uh, DAOs to nations. So so that's what I was doing. Uh, not nothing too exciting, but um, but that was the last thing I'm doing as I'm still preparing for this talk. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, what is your biggest pet peeve in crypto? Uh, there's a there's a number of pet peeves, so I'm not sure there's a big one, but my biggest one. But I think you know one obvious pet peeve to me is um, uh, it's funny now, but it's still a bit of pet peeve is sort of when Lambo, right? Um, and not because it's not it's funny today, you could say, especially in, in in light of what happened in 2022, because it's almost like you know, are you kidding me? Uh, but on the other hand, it does sort of sort of give that culture of um, you know, that crypto is about sort of, you know, like fast money and, and all, and, all that. and it's not right. It's about, you know, it's, it's about sort of, you know, we think of it as, as, as digital identity, as culture, uh, you know, crypto culture, we think is, is the much more important and much more influential part as opposed to quick money, as it were, which is often translated this way. Uh, and, and, and I guess it's a pet peeve because, because it's still an image that people have and the distaste that comes from that. And by the way, that distaste is the same distaste that people have around sort of brash capitalism, right? If you, uh, people who, who you know, um, show off and flaunt their wealth, whether it's deserved or not deserved, is distasteful and a little bit, um, and a little bit uh, sort of uh, tone deaf when most of the people are struggling, right? It's not to say that you didn't earn it. It's not to say that you don't necessarily deserve it, but um, it's really difficult when many other people struggle, especially during COVID and then, you know, the current sort of broader economic recession, right? These are things we have to be mindful of. And, and then there's, and then the sort of, let's call it side pet peeve that comes from this is the, the uh, let's call it um, ultra libertarian perspective of, well, you know, I made all this money, um, you know, I'm smart and maybe I'm lucky too, but generally I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I was early in crypto, so I deserve all this. And uh, there's a small group. It's it's not really, and I think this is very different with the NFT community, but uh, well, people who just basically are not prepared to give back um, because they think it's theirs, right? And um, and there are a hardcore group of ultra sort of crypto libertarians that that take that view. Uh, and I actually think uh, I personally think that's that's wrong as well. Because at the end of the day, even their good fortune that they've obtained actually was built on, you know, the shoulders of others. I mean, at minimum, you know, you could say their parents, but the community they grew up in, the education that they enjoyed, right? Um, the experiences, good and bad, that they went through. Uh, and and, uh, and I, I view it as quite a selfish view, because if we don't actually are, if we don't, if we, if we take that view to the extreme, as some people do, then I think um, we're distilling down the human condition to basically back to this idea of that we're just you know fungible trading items. That everything boils down to basically a value that is very tangible and therefore tradable. And this is the same group of people 
who would argue um, that there should be no royalties because they view it from that perspective as well, not recognizing that you paying royalties is investing into a sustainable future. It is not, you know, how much you take from it at this moment in time, right? And, you know, I think when we think about it deeply, we do this anyway. We buy green products. We're willing to pay more for carbon-friendly stuff. We're willing to pay more for things that are sustainable in our environment. You know, when you think about, you know, organic food or this type of stuff, uh, you know, we do so with the full recognition that it's a little bit more money, but it's something that gives us a sustainable long-term future. So I reject this idea that we are only driven by sort of, sort of entirely by greed, shall we say, or this idea that, you know, we can only be driven by the motivation of it's sort of the most optimized market condition, because the most optimized market condition would also mean that we should be basically just burning coal, right? Because it's cheaper than other forms of energy in the short term. And, uh, you know, and that we should be doing many unsustainable practices for the benefit of the short-term market, which is not true at all, right? Um, we don't think this way. Uh, so so that, that's kind of the pet peeve, I would say, the, the biggest pet peeves I have, broadly speaking, um, of, of the industry, which, by the way, isn't necessarily just industry-specific. I think you see this with, uh, you know, some extreme capitalists as well, right? It's not just uh, in, in our industry. So, so yeah, last question before we conclude the podcast. What are you most curious about in Web3? At the moment, first of all, you know, once you go down the Web three rabbit hole, it uh, it sort of is, is never ending, right? And and one some of the areas that I've been speaking on a little bit more on is, you know, blockchain as political systems. So it's something that is really interesting because I think one of the reasons why we have such a visceral reaction um, or a passionate reaction, either way, right, in blockchain, is because it has embedded within it a political view of the world, right? you know, free markets, capitalism, you know, a, you know, a liberal perspective of the world, right? Which, you know, I think because we don't all understand what that feeling comes from, because we don't study it or we don't fully understand it, but we have a innate feeling around it because maybe capitalism didn't work for us and therefore we were critical of it. And, you know, um, particularly crypto is a kind of digital capitalism. And so the reaction towards that, as I see it, where people are negative towards that field, sort of evoke the same feelings as people have with people in Wall Street and the banking industry, right? They, they, they tend to be people that say, I don't like, you know, people in Wall Street banking because they're all sharks. I mean, that's not fair, but that's what their, their, their assumption would be. And that sort of translates down to that. So, so I'm both fascinated in how we can sort of, uh, sort of navigate that narrative because capitalism is a very, very important thing. Without capitalism, you wouldn't have entrepreneurship. You wouldn't have the incentive for innovation. And what Web3 does is it creates uh, more direct and better incentives that are capitalist in nature, right? What we describe as a kind of stakeholder capitalism. And if we can, so, so, so part of the goal is how can we translate and explain to people that actually capitalism is still this incredible force of, of, of positive good, except that it needs some reform. And you know, shareholder capitalism in the way we've seen it has sort of taken the world in one way, but Web3 can actually uh, sort of reform capitalism in one that is actually one where we share the network effect, where we build our own equity, right? So those are ideas that we have to keep promoting. And, and so that's the, that's the thing that I think is so powerful about Web3, but that's also the thing that is, you know, perhaps most difficult to explain when we, when many people lack a general understanding of, you know, even the politics and the social structure constructs in which they live in today. They they just take it for granted. They just exist in it, but they don't think about it 
well, you know, why does the ownership of my property actually work? What's the underlying mechanism? Because at the end of the day, it's not because you live physically, it's because there's a legal system and a country and a government that protects your ownership of the property. That is actually a legal construct. It is not a physical one. It's actually virtual, if you think about it. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great having you. Mehdi and myself are super excited for this podcast to be released. So much alpha here, so much learning to be had. Anyone listening, please make sure to listen again. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.